Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to the final Money Talk of June. It's Thursday the 1st of June. You can also find this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk in your podcast app. And we're also on Facebook. Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page there. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's manufacturing activity contracted for a second month in May, while activity in the services sector expanded rapidly, highlighting the uneven nature of the economic recovery in China. The official manufacturing PMI fell to a five-month low of 48.8 in May from 49.2 in April. The official non-manufacturing PMI, which covers activity in the services sector, came in at 54.5 for the month, expanding for the fifth straight month. JP Morgan Chairman Jamie Dimon warned Wednesday that uncertainty over the Chinese government's policies could hit investor confidence. He told Bloomberg TV in response to a question on China's crackdown on the tech sector and on consultants, if you have more uncertainty, somewhat caused by the Chinese government, it's not just going to change foreign direct investment, it's going to change the people here and their own confidence. India's GDP grew much faster than expected in the first quarter, indicated broad-based growth in the economy. The Indian economy expanded 6.1% year-on-year in the first quarter of 2023. The expansion was mainly boosted by private consumption, services exports and manufacturing. For the 2022-23 fiscal year, ending in March, India's GDP grew 7.2%, surpassing economists' expectations and confirming the country's status as one of the world's fastest-growing economies. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks fell on the final day of trading in May as the number of job vacancies unexpectedly rose in April, increasing odds that the Federal Reserve will again raise interest rates. However, two Fed officials on the rate-setting FOMC indicated they were in favour of a pause in rate hikes this month. The S&P 500 dipped 0.6% to close at 4,180. It added 0.2% in the month. The Dow fell 135 points or 0.4% to 32,908. It was the underperformer in May, losing 3.5%. And Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.6%, finishing at 12,935. The Nasdaq finished the month 5.8% higher helped by a rally in artificial intelligence-related stocks and other technology names. Shares of AI chip designer NVIDIA soared 36% in May, briefly making it the first chip company worth more than $1 trillion. Asia-Pacific markets fell on Wednesday. Australia's ASX 200 dropped 1.6% and for May it was down 3%. South Korea's Cosby reversed earlier gains and lost 0.3%, but for the month it put in a positive performance, rising 3%. Japan was the month's standout performer in Asia, although the Nikkei 225 retreated from its 33-year high and fell 1.4% on Wednesday. The index was up 7% overall in May. 
Hong Kong stocks flirted with a bear market on Wednesday. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 362 points, or 1.9% to 18,234. That's a new low for 2023. From its January peak, the benchmark is now down 19.6%, putting it almost in a bear market which is defined as a loss of 20% or more from the recent high. And it briefly breached that level in Monday morning trading before rebounding. For the month of May, the Hang Seng lost 8.3%. And the tech index dropped 2% yesterday, taking its losses for the month to 7%. Asia's worst performing index is the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index of mainland companies listed in the city. That dropped 1.9% on Wednesday taking its losses from its January the 27th peak to 20.7% and sending it into a bear market. Mainland Chinese markets were also lower. The CSI 300 index of the largest listed stocks in Shanghai and Shenzhen fell 1%, having erased all of its 2023 gains last week. It was down 5.7% in May, its fourth straight losing month, and the benchmark has tumbled almost 10% now from its peak at the end of January, wiping out 1 trillion US dollars in value from domestic A shares. The offshore yuan fell half a percent to 7.1283 against the dollar, breaking through the 7.12 per dollar mark for the first time since November last year. The Chinese currency is down 2.9% for the month and down 3.1% for the year to date. And you can get more details on the latest market movements, which you'll find in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us, as we do every Thursday morning, Andrew Ferris, who's the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Patrick Bennett, who is a Hong Kong-based macro strategist. Morning, Patrick. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Let's start with the uh, the PMI data from China. Data from China's National Bureau of Statistics yesterday showed China's manufacturing activity contracted for a second month in May, while activity in the services sector expanded rapidly, highlighting the uneven nature of the economic recovery. The official PMI fell to a five-month low of 48.8 in May. That's down from 49.2 in April. Missed economist estimates of 49.4. The contraction in factory activity pointed to weakening domestic and global demand and the official non-manufacturing PMI which covers activity in the service sector and industries such as forestry and agriculture came in at 54.5 for the month. That's marginally lower than analysts' expectations but well above the 50-point reading that separates expansion from contraction. While pointing to the fifth straight month of expansion in services activity following the removal of strict pandemic curbs by Beijing last year, the latest result is the softest pace since January. Now, Andrew, I'm always a bit reticent about talking about PMI numbers um, with you because I know you're not a big fan of them. But anyway, what, what do you glean from this? Well, actually, for, for a change, and although the weather in Hong Kong is incredibly thundery and gloomy and pouring with rain, actually, I'm not really convinced uh, the huge amount of attention that has been paid to the PMI, not because I don't particularly like them, but because there are a lot of other numbers that <clears throat> I clear my throat that they don't look at all in the same direction. Now, PMI is forward-looking. Okay, I stress that. PMI is forward-looking. All the other numbers are backward-looking. Now, there was things that have happened. But, for example, cumulative industrial production in China has been expanding now, at least for the last three months. Okay, and the last number we had was for April. It was 3.6%. Uh, 
So I find it's a little bit peculiar that for three months it has been expanding, and suddenly in the last two months the expectations have been changing. There is another number which I like, although it is a little bit funny and the markets don't pay attention to that. That's the Bloomberg monthly GDP. Yeah, you heard it, monthly GDP. And that has been increasing, again, for three months running, and it's based primarily on industrial production. So, you know, to, to press the button marked uh, panic because the PMI has come down uh, and it is below the 50. I'm afraid I'm a little bit reluctant. I want to see the Kaixin numbers that we're going to get on Friday. And mm -hmm. in all probability, they will also be down because they, they match very fairly closely what happens with the CFLP. Uh, mm -hmm. So these numbers have left me, let's say, basically uninterested. Nonplussed. Yeah, nonplussed, exactly. Um, Patrick, I mean, you could point to some other things, though, couldn't you, which, which are rather gloomy, like the trade data, the inflation data, the amount of foreign direct investment going into China. They're all rather pointing downwards. Look, I, that, that's true. Look, the, what I really take out of these numbers is the divergence between the domestic activity, the services activity, and, uh, and the outlook for, for global demand. And I think that's where the threat is for, uh, you know, for, for China going forward here. Yes, production has been, uh, has been reasonably strong, but the outlook for demand you know, from, the, uh, from the global community under the influence of higher interest rates continues to look very soft. So I think it's going to be a bumpy ride forward. And I think as far as the markets have been concerned, it's a, it's a reality versus their expectations uh, you know, when China came out of the COVID restrictions, thinking that, well, now everything's going to be well. And simply, you know, that's not quite the case, that it is going to be quite bumpy. Uh, and I think we need to, uh, need to keep aware of that. I mean, if, if you were looking back in January, as some people were, and, and cautioning, um, and I remember you were cautioning at the time, you know, don't expect this huge rebound. You're probably not too disappointed at the moment or surprised by these numbers. It's the people that were expecting, um, you know, this rapid surge in consumer spending, this revenge spending that they were calling it, that are the ones that are disappointed now. I think that's, uh, I think that's correct. Uh, I see these numbers as, uh, you know, as validating the expectations and the warnings that we were talking about uh, earlier this year. Uh, and now we still you know, continue with a, a, a fair degree of, of caution. Uh, and again, you know, to, to, to repeat, I think the caution is not just domestically in China, but uh, you know, the caution from a, a global outlook as well, that we're simply not in a, a repeat of post-2008-2009 where China is able to lift all, all boats, including their own. Uh, and I think that we're seeing that in, uh, in, in numbers elsewhere. And I think we can't just look at China in isolation. We need to look at where their place is uh, you know, within global activity, within global uh, growth. Andrew, where does the consumer fit into the picture? Uh, uncomfortably, because American interest rates are not going to, are not going to come down. Uh, sorry. Uh, as you say, where, where does the consumer sector uh, stand? I said uncomfortably, because American interest rates are not coming down. Uh, the European Union has also pointed that they are not planning to cut, and except uh, Japan that still stays at, uh, at near zero, again, uh, let's say major interest rates moves uh, are not necessarily favorable. But I wish you would ask me why on earth the equity and the capital markets are so childish in their behavior right now. I feel like saying, oh, for God's sakes, what do you want? What's the problem now? <laughs> well, we're going to get on to that because I do want to talk uh, about do, the, the Chinese please markets. Do. But let, let's just stick with the economic data for a moment. Um, 
Someone on the programme yesterday suggested handing out stimulus checks on the mainland to to consumers like um, they've done in other parts um, of the world in the wake of uh, of, of COVID, like here in Hong Kong, also in the US. Do you think think that should be a consideration? China and uh, and elsewhere are concerned about uh, you know indebtedness and uh, you know we're seeing more reports of that. So I think that this would only you know, exacerbate those concerns. So I think that, you know the, the PMI services number you know, suggests that there has been some pent up demand and uh, and the domestic economy is is moving along at a at a fair pace. Notwithstanding, you know we have to recover the you know the three years of uh, you know of very uh, you know truncated activity. So uh, I, I don't think that's uh, the way forward at this forward stage. At this stage. Well, Chinese authorities perhaps uh, may have it their own way in the sense that they tend to be very non-interventionist. And when interest rates are cut by three or four basis points, you know, it raises a yawn and a laugh. And at the same time, one says, yes, yes, they don't want to, 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 to repeat what the United States or the European Union did. But on the other hand, they can't have it both ways. You know, they cannot get a 5% uh, GDP growth. Uh, following uh, nearly two and a half years of a complete close down on COVID, which apparently actually turned out to be basically not necessary or not incredibly useful. The the policy the policy way forward for for China is, has been and continues to be to access the excess savings that uh, the Chinese depositors have. Uh, so rather than a stimulus check, is about uh, continuing to manage the the triple R, uh, continuing to manage the you know the cost of money for banks, and so to release that money through. You know, through lending rather than through uh, through stimulus through stimulus checks or, or otherwise, and and I think for now, you know, the lending data that we've seen to date has been very like the economy has been very uneven, uh, and I think that's a that, that's a key uh, figure that I'm looking at uh, going forward. Andrew, where has all this um, stimulus gone? Because you know, money supplies at a record high. We've seen uh, total social financing, you know, pretty high um, as well. But it doesn't seem to be well. It doesn't seem to be getting into the right parts of the economy. What, what's happening to it? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that's that's a right, right. Uh, uh, yeah. The, as I say, it's been very uneven. Uh, we also saw, we, we saw at the start of the year some repayment of, of mortgages by uh, by consumers, um, borrowing, of course, uh, or relending or refinancing for the, the property sector has been a very large uh, sector or a very large uh, very large portion of it. So again, it's that unevenness, uh, and I fear uh, you know, to uh, to Andrew's point earlier. Uh, about the build-up or, or about the increase in, in industrial production, that we're not going to see some of this uh, turn up in, in inventory in the, in the months uh, going forward. Andrew, the, the, uh, the other issue here is jobs, isn't it? The, the, the pandemic restrictions, they've eliminated, uh, eliminated about 30 million service sector jobs, although some of them are going to come back. It, it's the youth, um, it's the young people that seem to be suffering the most from all of this. We've got this horrendously high youth unemployment rate of, of more than 20, uh, 20%. What can the government do to try and bring that down? Um, uh, manipulating the manipulating the the age structure of the population, of course, is a complete impossibility, and uh, <laughs> neither and neither is uh, is changing the educational structure educational sector structure. So you know you, you produce a lot more electronic engineers and uh, and fewer accountants and uh, and uh, literature students. Uh, it is basically on expanding aggregate demand. And uh, as we have been pointing out, uh, this takes place very slowly. And the best thing they can do is uh, uh, grit their teeth and hope that this doesn't turn out to be a social problem. Because 
it is only six months ago that uh, there was a complete volfash out of the blue and says, forget about COVID, uh, we, are, we are off to the races. And I have an insistent nudge, which, of course, I cannot possibly quantify, and it will be very unfair to sort of dangle this, that the two and a half years created a hell of a lot more damage than we imagine it did, primarily in terms of expectations and primarily in terms of uh, we are going forward now on two. Not that for one moment the Chinese population thinks or expects that they are going to have another clampdown because this is, this is not going to happen. But uh, the two and a half years were apparently much harder than we thought they were. Mm-hmm. There is uh, almost a kind of a cramped reluctance uh, to spend. And uh, hence lower interest rates and uh, making uh, expenditure on housing easier uh, is really not necessarily the way forward. Although, mind you, we now know in the case of Hong Kong, where the government gave people cash, this is not having the kind of effect that the government was expected to have. In in what way? In which way? Well, because the Hong Kong economy is still very, very dumpy, very flat. Okay, and we had we had two major sections of uh, five thousand each, following one after the other, with a little bit more coming now in July. Patrick, do you think consumer spending is going to get back to pre-COVID levels, or has something changed in the in the consumer psyche in terms of you know the way now they're thinking about their job security, maybe the the way forward? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think that things have changed uh, materially, uh, as Andrew points out. I think the last two and a half years, not just in China, but everywhere, has uh, has changed expectations and, and outlooks. Um, interest rates, obviously, are, are higher. Uh, people are more concerned about their, their future employment. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, you're leading the horse to water, but getting them to getting them to drink is is, is very difficult. And uh, yeah, I think consumer spending is going to be more conservative for for some time to come. You know, the so-called pent-up demand, uh, you know, was one thing, but I don't think we're going to see a uh, I don't think we're going to see a repeat of that. So I, I think we're into in for a uh, a period of uh, of stilted growth, which is uh, impacted you know, primarily by. Uh, by tighter monetary policy, which was perhaps uh, too slow in coming, uh, given that we went through these, uh, you know, this COVID period. I think one of the things that people are disappointed in, certainly investors in the markets anyway, is, is the lack of concrete sort of stimulus. The, the government's talked a lot about wanting to stimulate uh, consumption and talked about the, it being a priority, but we haven't seen any concrete policies, have we, so far to actually go and do that? No, no well, of course um, you know, we've had infrastructure spending, as we you know, we saw in, in China post-2008, 2009. Um, most of that has already been done. Uh, you know, stimulating uh, consumer demand is, you know, is all very well and good. But uh, as it was mentioned earlier about the, the lending data in China, uh, interest rates, uh, ha- you know, have come down um, modestly. Uh, and what we saw from the lending, lending data is that uh, consumers have actually there's been a bias towards repaying mortgages rather than rather than taking out uh, rate, taking out new ones. So I think that uh, speaks to the conservative nature and the conservative uh, outlook. Andrew, you you were sort of suggesting earlier that maybe you agree with what Jamie Dimon was saying uh, yesterday that it's actually government policies that are you know a large part of the problem that are causing this um, slowdown. You mentioned specifically you know the, the the impact of the COVID policies, but he was also talking about other things like the crackdown on the tech sector, the crackdown that we're currently seeing on consultants, the closing down of the education sector. How how much are these policies responsible uh, for for what's going on and 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 you know the 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 sort of the disappointing growth that we're seeing 
I call it a mosaic effect. In other words, it was not something that came like a ton of bricks. It was uh, individual little touches and points. And even in the case of the tech sector, <clears throat> I had at the time disagreed because tech sector means a lot of different things. There are tech uh, companies that make chips, tech companies that make things with chips, and then there are tech companies that simply do software. And uh, the Chinese government actually extended its control over companies that do software. So, hello, don't, uh, you know, include me out. In other words, it was not that all the tech sector came out uh, under an iron fist. So I, I preferred a little bit of more, of more nuanced approach. And yes, there were things like the restrictions on the education sector that, again, came, came suddenly. In other words, it would be nice if there were two buttons on policy. One is an analog and the other is a digital and I prefer an analog because that comes out in a smooth curve as opposed to an on-off kind of uh, thing. And that um, uh, there, there is a few lessons to be learned when it comes to that. Okay, well, let's get on to the, the question you wanted me to ask you about uh, the markets. Um, Hong Kong stocks almost in a bear market. The Hang Seng did briefly fall into a bear market um, earlier on yesterday. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index is in a bear market. It's down almost 21% now from its January the 27th peak. Uh, mainland Chinese markets also also lower. I mean, it's been, Andrew, a pretty dismal month, a pretty dismal month of May uh, for, for investors. But should they be surprised? Well, uh, let's let's take him one step at a time. First, we have the we have the the, the debt ceiling in the United States. Oh God, we're all going to die. Uh, <laughs> Biden is going to take an off to to debtors' prisons for not paying his debts. And well, it's gone, all right. And what has happened to the market? Absolutely nothing. Then the tech side is absolutely booming to the point. Okay, with the AI, I mean, the shares of specific companies like Nvidia are going gangbusters. And then, uh, well, what's happening? Well, we're all going to die because the robots are going to take over. Okay. And then uh, what's happening between the United States and China? Well, they're sort of quarreling, but not really. And then if you nuance what it has been controlled and it has been a bit of a tit for tat, it is, it is, it is bad, but it's not dramatic. So my reaction is, is what do you want? I mean, please, what is it? Interest rates? We know they're not going to go up yet. Sorry, they're not going to go down for the time being. So why are the markets so incredibly gloomy? In other words, there is really not in inverted commas pleasing them. I tend to think it is, uh, it is uh, well, uh, perhaps incapacity to digest and put the data in order. Not because I can do it better than they can, but at least I can observe and lay out what is there and say, well, there is not such a great deal of gloom and even when we look at the Chinese data, again, my nuance on that is uh, is different. So but then, on the other hand, Peter, Peter, I mean, it's not that I'm right and they're wrong. It is simply an observation. But okay. but are you saying that really you think that investors are being too gloomy in in China and that maybe they're they're missing um, some things too, here? Too too gloomy everywhere, basically. In other words, there's no 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 pleasing. I mean, what is there that will make the markets start going up? on a consistent increase? And the answer is, is effectively, the tech industry is doing very well. The debt ceiling is over and out. Uh, the Fed is uh, perhaps might increase, but perhaps we might. So in other words, there isn't enough to create a gloom and doom situation as it is now. So yeah. uh, perhaps I'm missing out something. Well, Patrick, what are your thoughts? What's your assessment? Uh, look, I think it's simply uh, the due to the cost of capital. 
the cost of capital for for mum and pop investors, the cost of capital for uh, professional investors or, or, or fund managers, uh, you know, that cost of capital has gone up. Mm. You know, so if we look at a, a long-term stock market index, a, a global one or, or anyone you, you might want to pick, and if you if you stand far away, from, if you stand far enough away from it, you know, it goes from the bottom left to the top right. And that's because you know, growth is, uh, has over time ha- has picked up, and interest rates have been at moderate levels. You know, sometimes high, sometimes low, and extraordinarily low, extraordinarily low, you know, for the last uh, you know 50, 15 years. Well, that's changing. So the cost of capital has gone up, and so now we're seeing you know, ownership of uh, of equities change hands, and we need to find a, a level where investors in some are happy to be buying again. And I don't believe we're at that yet because I think we're facing persistently high inflation, persistently high interest rates and growth, which is going to be challenged for you know a number of months uh, you know, still going forward. And when I say a number of months, I, I think likely another you know, six or 12 months. But if you look in China, um, interest rates are much lower than elsewhere in the world. They're not going up. Inflation is non-existent. So there's presumably potential for policy response there. You'd almost think that Chinese equities should be the outperformers um, in the world, not the underperformers. Well, you would think so. Um, but I think, well, one of the thing or a couple of factors i think are particularly uh relevant for the chinese market one is it is very narrowly held uh two is that we haven't seen the portfolio inflow to the market which was a very strong supporter for a number of years and so we we removed that and again we're trying to find this new balance level where uh, you know where investors want to be uh participating uh, without the you know, foreign investment and the risk premium to invest in china has certainly gone up in the last uh, year, year or two uh, then I think that you know we face uh, you know the uncertainty, uh, the uncertainty uh, looking ahead. Uh, of course, a lot of the funding uh, has been uh, a lot of funding in the Chinese market as well. It's not just out of the domestic market; it has been funded out of uh, international uh, money markets for you know, for some time, and that now obviously is is, is changing. And, and foreign investors, I mean, they've been particularly aggressive in dumping Chinese stocks. I mean, one of the reasons I've heard from them is that they, they just can't think of um, a, a reason to be in the, the Chinese market at the moment. They just can't see, you know, with all the political geopolitical tensions going on, um, they, they can't find a positive sort of, if you like, stimulus that's going to make the market go up. Well, that's right. You know, the, the risk premium has has gone up, be that uh, exactly. you know, geopolitics or uh, uncertainty and uh, uncertainty over activity that we're seeing now, in the you know, uncertainty or unevenness in the in the activity. So, uh, you know, if you're a, a an international investor, then your your allocation to uh, to China has uh, you know has liked or not likely has uh, you know has decreased. Whether that's going to be a you know a valid strategy going forward, I, I would doubt it. I think there's going to be a level. Where, where investors should be participating and you know, perhaps the ongoing weakness of the currency will allow that, uh, that opportunity, will allow that uh, entry point. Andrew, I mean, final word to you on this. I mean, we're seeing there are some things to be positive about, aren't there, in the, in the Chinese markets? I mean, you would almost think that the worst has been priced in here. And I mean, China is still exporting. It's got a record uh, sort of trade surplus. Um, and, you know, there are things that are, you know, that are looking quite positive about uh, about China. So it, it's a bit odd, isn't it, that people just don't seem to be able to find a reason to be buying and, and, and are hitting Chinese equities more than anything else in the world. I agree, and I have no problem actually. Uh, let's say expounding on my ignorance to say, really, I don't understand why. Uh, I am a, an incredibly close follower of the Aussie dollar, and the Aussie dollar has been absolutely in the dumps. And strictly speaking, one should have said, with the 
performance of the Chinese economy in terms of the inputs of coal, in terms of the beginning of the inputs of agricultural products from Australia having lifted uh, the, the, the restrictions, should be considerably better for the Aussie, and it isn't. Okay, so what on earth is the problem with the Aussie dollar and the explanation? This is nearly, in fact, what my colleague here is, is expanding, is, of course, increases in interest rates. Uh, in other words, the differential of the Aussie to the United States may, ve may very well widen if, in fact, the Fed, as I do believe, will increase interest rates. So it is, uh, it is a little bit of a, of a complex uh, situation, but with, uh, uh, as I say, uh, question marks arising to which personally I cannot give answers right now. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and then Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. <laughs> I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. Very good morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Uh, you've got a new corporate superstar wandering around Taipei at the moment, I believe. Jensen Huang, who is uh, the co-founder and the chief executive of NVIDIA, a company that's very much in focus at the moment. He's been in Taipei. He's been talking a lot um, about artificial intelligence, which has rather shaken up uh, the, the markets anyway. Yeah, I hope he's not paying a PR firm because he's gotten so much PR coverage in the past few weeks uh, with uh, all this focus on uh, AI and the need for uh, uh, chips that are designed by NVIDIA and his appearance at Computex. So he's been a real all-star of, not, I would say, not just the tech world, but the business world. And uh, something we should also keep in mind because it's getting a lot of attention, of course, is also the political world because we see that governments and regulators and politicians are talking about how to regulate uh, AI. But be that as it may, uh, yeah, the company has been a big winner, not just its stock price, but the obvious need for, for uh, chips that it designs. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just the industry leader, in fact, by, by far. And uh, they outsource their production to TSMC. So TSMC here in Taiwan uh, will be a big winner as well. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, Taiwan's in a good position, isn't it, to uh, to benefit from this? Not only is Jensen Huang, of course, Taiwanese, but you've got, as you mentioned, TSMC um, there. The, the Chinese economy is really um, in a very nice position for this um, explosion in, in artificial intelligence. Yeah, uh, Taiwan typically rides a, any wave of something new in the tech world. So uh, I, I think back, say, 25 years to the late 90s when suddenly we could burn DVDs at home and TV, uh, Taiwan was a big producer of, of storage media, uh, yeah, that, that it was uh, mobile devices, whether 2G, then 3G, uh, tablets, you know, Taiwan. Uh, you know, its niche in, in, or one of its niches in the tech world has always been being the outsourced manufacturing partner and it's something that Taiwan does really well so yes to the extent that uh, there's going to be a big spend whether in the corporate world or by individual consumers like us related to AI and Taiwan will benefit uh, but but interesting uh, at the same time of all this good news and we know that Taiwan's tech industry will benefit Taiwan's uh, uh, statistical agency actually lowered the GDP forecast for 2023 recently. <laughs> 
But it, it also it puts Taiwan in a little bit of a difficult position as well, doesn't it? Because it means that its economy is very much in focus in other parts of the world, and in particular, the importance of the Taiwanese economy, the uh, the supply chains which go through uh, Taiwan, the chip manufacturers like Taiwan Semiconductor, just how much the world depends upon them. And that's obviously getting the focus of the US and the EU who want to develop stronger relations, and of course, also China. Well, I, I, I would look at it a different way because, you know, that's just part of risk management. And that, that is that, uh, that we hear this from American and European politicians. Uh, yeah, Taiwan is vitally important. Oh, by the way, uh, for resiliency purposes, uh, could we move some of this manufacturing over to where we are? So uh, we see the, these enormous subsidies from the United States and Europe to try and get uh, uh, these very expensive semiconductor fabs to be built in, in, in either the U.S. or Europe. And TSMC has had ongoing discussions with Germany about building a, a fab in Germany uh, to follow on. Uh, you know, the, the fab in Arizona that's in progress uh, and is going to come online pretty soon. Uh, and it's probably going to happen. Right? Germany will, will ante up and the European Union will ante up enough subsidies and uh, for political reasons as well. TSMC will, will probably announce sometime soon that they're building a big fab. Uh, so again, that's another one of those things that work, works both ways, right? It's good, it's good for Taiwan's tech companies. Uh, we, we hear politicians saying we need to uh, save Taiwan because of its role in the semiconductor industry or the tech industry more broadly. Uh, but then we also see uh, politicians and, and, and industry saying uh, maybe it's not such a great idea for all that production to be located in, in one place. But also it means you're, you're getting a lot of visitors. As we discussed when we last spoke on this uh, program, you had former UK Prime Minister Liz Truss there. Since then, I think you've had Malcolm Turnbull, the former Australian Prime Minister in Taiwan. What, what's he been doing and saying there? Uh, yeah, well, on the topic of resiliency, he, he spoke uh, uh, at an annual forum of, of an NGO that's focused on that very topic in the Asia Pacific. Uh, yeah, so it's it's nice to see former some things or somebody's coming here. Uh, often they're they're paid to come here. Often they say things that they didn't say when they were in office. Uh, so we have to keep that in mind as well. But uh, it, it, this is also not just an international issue. We should keep in mind that this is highly linked to Taiwan upcoming election next January in the sense that uh, the ruling party, uh, the DPP, outgoing President Tsai and, and her uh, successor, William Lai, if, if he wins the election, they, as you alluded to, they want to internationalize uh, these issues, right? They, they want to tell the voters that the world cares about Taiwan uh, and we're the best party to continue operating uh, that model of foreign relations. Uh, and uh, you know, they bring these foreign, foreign VIPs here to speak uh, and then claim a, a foreign policy or or public relations victory. So, yeah, it's it, on the one hand, it's it, it's wrapped up in the geopolitics or the global geopolitics, but uh, all politics being local, it's highly correlated to Taiwan's local uh, national election as well. And, and there's there's a lot of interesting things going on ahead of that. I noticed yesterday William Lai, I think he was asked by a journalist, wasn't he, about who he would most like to have dinner with, and he said President Xi Jinping, which uh, caught the attention of China. They weren't very pleased by that comment. If I could take some uh, credit for that, that was actually a, a, at an event by a student-run organization that I, I help advise here in, in Taipei, where, where uh, we had uh, uh, two out of the three presidential candidates came, uh, William, uh, William Lai, uh, former Taipei mayor, Ko Wenjia, uh, unfortunately, uh, Ho Yoi of the Nationalist Party had, had a prior engagement that day, actually got a lot of negative media attention for not showing up, uh, but uh, the, yeah, there's a lot of focus on that comment, but I'll tell 
tell you, you know, having been at the, the event and hearing the candidates speak and, and, and watching the students uh, ask questions, you know, the, the good thing and the important thing to keep in mind is this is also an exercise in democracy and you know, hearing the students ask very detailed questions about policy issues. Uh, it's, it's just good to see whether or not you know, China will agree to the dinner invitation remains to be seen. Mm, I think I know the answer to that. Now, while everyone's <laughs> rushing over to Taiwan, um, the, the Wall Street Journal is warning about business travel to, to China um, and basically saying the rules have changed now for, for executives planning to travel um, to the country. Um, what's been the reaction to that? This is not really a new issue, though, right? And those of us who have, have worked in the region, you know, we're familiar with some of the more prominent cases that have been in the news going back many years for uh, corporate executives from multinational companies, whether they were Chinese nationals or foreign nationals, who've been detained as a result of business disputes. Uh, it's not new that as a result of, of something more in the nature of, of, of a political uh, a dispute that, that companies have gotten wrapped up or stuck in that kind of uh, situation as well. And, and uh, although although it's been getting a lot of, a lot of focus lately, uh, the data collection issue, that's also not, not a new issue. We're familiar with, with some of those prominent cases going back a number of years as well. Uh, but uh, it, it gets reported as you know, there, there is this heavy crackdown of some sort uh, going, going on. And uh, companies just have to continue to consult with, with whether that's internal counsel, internal security or external advisors and uh, you know, comply with the law. You know, that's that's the risks and the challenges of doing business in certain countries, including the mainland and uh, high risk, high reward. But uh, you know, we see companies also make some decisions that, that you know, albeit in hindsight, you say, my gosh, what were you thinking? And if, 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 if you're if you're head of security is a former CIA agent and you're broadcasting that publicly, uh, you know, that's probably not the best uh, image you want to have when you're doing business in China. But do you think um, executives of overseas firms are, are really pulling back now on their trips to China and questioning, do I really need to go at all? There's a little bit of that, but look, we saw this this big forum with uh, 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 Mr. Diamond from J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, Elon Musk has been in China, uh, so you know, somebody might say, "Well, they're not going to arrest Elon Musk. He's a, he's a big investor." You know, fair enough, but uh, uh, he's. They, they do have to consider day to day, you know, the, the executives below the level of Elon Musk face certain risks and, and you know, they, they live with those risks. So, you know, part of this is just being prudent and, and complying with the law uh, and, and refreshing yourself as well. You know, what's the latest developments in the law? And, and as I mentioned, looking at, at your personnel uh, is also important about this. And, and you have to consider that maybe certain people are not the, the best image you want to have for doing business in China. And that is subject to change over time and something that needs to constantly be reviewed. I, I presume also as well as you know, your own physical security, you've got to think about digital security as well. What have you got on your laptop, on your iPhones um, that, that could be viewed by authorities once you're in the mainland? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, I would say uh, that this also is not a new issue, uh, whether you were traveling to, to other frontier markets or China or, or Russia 
over over the years, this is always something that uh, multinational corporations or even SMEs should be thinking about. Uh, and uh, you know, this also happens in other parts of the world. You know, people lose USB sticks uh, when traveling anywhere. Uh, you know, it, it, it always surprises people to find out that when they enter the United States, their computers and, and phones and USBs and storage media could be searched by U.S. Customs right there at the airport. This has been litigated many times in the U.S. courts and at least up to now. Now, uh, the, the courts have decided on the side of the government. Uh, so, uh, you know, prudence, prudence is the rule here. Uh, but, yeah, of course, you should practice good, good IT security. And, again, it's one of those things that uh, companies shouldn't be lazy about. You, know, you should constantly refresh your internal knowledge. Ross, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your insights this morning. That's Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at Sapro Group over in Taipei. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Statton Advice. Bye for now. Money Talk 